in the worst moment, the greatest thing in the world. And so let's stand one more time out of the respect of the reading of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start once again in verse number 4, and we'll read all the way down to the beginning of verse number 8. Notice what Scripture says, Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. God, thank you for the power and the songs in which we've heard just a moment ago. God, I'm thankful that we were able to sing and to praise and to extol your wonderful name, your great, your great saving grace, that wonderful blood that was shed for our sins, that washes us white as snow. Thank God for your faithfulness. God, we're thankful that when we are not faithful to you, you are faithful to us. What an incredible thing it is. God, I'm thankful that my salvation and a life that's lived by grace is not dependent upon what I do, but upon who you are. God, I pray now, as we think about how unbreakable and how amazing your love is, God, I pray that you would help us this morning to see the greatest thing in the world. God, your love truly never fails. May we know the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. There are so many things today that strive to be the greatest in all the world. There are signs of shops throughout this country and in multiple countries that say something like this, the best coffee in the world. It's amazing how many shops have that. Now, which one really is the best, I'm not sure. But many strive to have what? That best coffee in the world. Some advertise that they have the best vacuum cleaner in the world. And then we use it, and then we go over that same spot multiple times, right? Maybe even the best car in the world. That's very dependent and user-specific, is it not? And then, of course, there's a great battle today for technology. And some advertise to be the best smartphone in the world. And yet, when we try those things, we are let down by those things. There's a bug in the software. There's a faulty switch on the instrument panel. The vacuum cleaner maybe is hard to clean or maybe has an area that's hard to service. Or maybe there's an aftertaste in that coffee that leaves us with something that's to desire a little more and desire something else. There's so many things today that clamor to be the greatest thing in all the world. There's so many things that clamor for that title. And may I submit to you today, Paul relays the greatest thing in the world. You see, there is one thing in which speaks every language that this world can utter today. There is one thing that excels above all other things. There is one thing that testifies in a way in which the world clamors for and even strives to see. And that is a word that is truly often abused by worldly minds, defined as love. Love is the greatest thing this world can see. The action of love truly is something that is understood by all. It speaks every dialect. It speaks into the heart, deep into the soul. And all of us can decipher as truly be the recipient of a love that surpasses all understanding. It speaks truly heart, uh, speaks deeply to the heart of the lover and the loved alike. It moves in ways in which we may not even anticipate. And it comforts truly when all seems to be lost. Every one of us here this morning 
desires to be deeply loved. Everyone in Skelmersdale desires to be deeply loved. Every single man, every single woman, every single child, no matter their age, no matter where they are, desires to see a love that speaks a language in which their heart is craving to earn and desire. Henry Drummond wrote a pamphlet called The Greatest Thing in the World. And I am borrowing bits and pieces from that, borrowing bits and pieces from this pamphlet, not for outline, but just some illustrations in which he gave through this small pamphlet that truly speaks into this very theme of the love of God. Henry, uh, Henry Drummond began to testify about Paul and before salvation. Think about this for just a moment. Paul, who was known as Saul before he came to know Christ as Savior, did not know what true love was. He writes in his pamphlet, Love was not Paul's strong point. The hand that wrote the greatest of these is love. When we meet, it first is stained with blood. Think about Paul, Saul, before he got saved. Saul was a murderer. Saul was a man who murdered Christians who proclaimed the love of God. He did not know the love of God. He knew a vengeance. He knew a, uh, a, a doctrine that was filled full of performance, full of what you must do to earn some place in heaven. And his hands were dripping with blood of innocent lives, innocent people, innocents in whom he hurt and wounded deeply, even unto death. And yet, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the amazing grace of God. Do you get this this morning? If you don't get anything else this morning, may I encourage you please to get this simple thought. That the grace of God changed Saul, who was a murderer of innocent people who loved the Lord, to begin to proclaim that very love in which he tried to silence. That is the grace of God. That is what God can do. I don't know every heart here this morning. I don't know where you're, uh, what you're dealing with or what your struggle is in your heart this morning. But I guarantee you the grace of God leads to a point in which the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love truly is something in which God's Holy Spirit gives and equips and by His grace enables us to have. There is no greater language this morning than that love language. Henry Drummond writes, You can take nothing greater to the heathen world than the impress, uh, than the impress and, infl- and reflection of the love of God upon your own character. That is the universal language. It will take you years to speak in Chinese or in the dialects of India. From the day you land, that language of love understood by all will be pouring forth its unconscious eloquence. It is the man who is the missionary. It is not his words. His character is his message. Henry Drummond said that when people are looking for the love of God, looking for the grace of God, they look for in its character. A missionary is not effective. Our missionaries are not effective because they are eloquent, because they they can say something in a certain way. Our missionaries are effective in reaching the people with the gospel. Why? Because of the love of God that flows through them. The love of God that speaks to the heart like nothing else can. It's the love of God that moves in a mighty way. It speaks a language everyone understands. Paul summarizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the characteristics of godly love. Everyone looks to see this godly love. Everyone wants to see it, experience it, and allow it to deeply seed in our hearts. The world shows a picture of love. And this picture of love that the world shows is so much inferior 
than what the true love of God is. So often we see a picture and we'll say this is love. Propagating an agenda, propagating a lifestyle, propagating a certain feeling or an emotional response. But may I state that true love is pictured in a much different way. There's something about the love of God that cannot go without compare. Paul here in just these four verses of our text gives eight negatives to the love of God and four positives in just four simple verses. You say negatives to the love of God? When a husband says I do to his wife and he loves her, what does that love move him to do? That love moves him to take his eyes off of every other prospect. Take his eyes and his heart off of entertaining any other woman and focuses upon the one in whom God has given him. A husband filled with godly love takes what was the field or the sea, all the fish in the sea, and says, no, I have a little pond. And in that pond, there's one. And that's the one for me. You see, it filters It hones down that one. It focuses on others. It takes away from others to focus upon that in which God has given. That's what the love of God does. The love of God takes some things and it narrows things down to what God says is love through His Holy Spirit. It's natural for a man that that loves his wife to act a certain way, to do certain things, to care for her and to make sure that his wife is well, is well nourished and well supplied and make sure that she is tended to and her needs are met. That's natural. That's a godly man wanting to show godly love to his wife and wanting to show in a powerful way the love of God that's flowing through him. That is what a heart that is loving to his spouse, focuses upon. You see, love moves us to action. And that action, that acting of love is called charity. Hence what we see here in 1 Corinthians 13. Charity is the love of God in action. We truly are not filled with the love of God or or have not yielded our spirits to the love of God if His love doesn't move us to action, and that action is charity. It will be displayed. It will be acted upon. And God teaches us here, in 1 Corinthians 13, how godly love acts. How does it act? What does it do? There's 12 things in which Paul gives. I know you're looking at the time thinking 12 points, we're going to be here all afternoon. Don't worry, we're only going to look at the first verse this morning, amen? We're going to look at verse number four and then we will go on a marathon run the next week. Uh, uh, We'll see how the Lord Lord leads. This might end up being a three or four or five or six or seven part week, I don't know. But we'll see how God leads here this morning. Look please with me at verse number four. I want you to see first of all, what Paul teaches us. Charity, the action of love, suffereth long. The first thing Paul teaches us is that charity, godly love, suffers long. What does that mean, suffers long? That word suffering long, those words suffering long, speaks to be patient with enduring. What does that mean? It means to be even-tempered, even uh, even while enduring trying circumstances. 
Sometimes we think, well, love is just patient, and that's part of it. Love is patient. But this is speaking of a love in patience that endures while you are the one as an object of being afflicted upon. In other words, there's a trial, there's a difficulty, there is a problem, and a godly love is willing to be patient even in a time in which one is the object of being afflicted upon. It is truly a self-restraint that when faced with provocation, that love, godly love, does not retaliate. It is never in a hurry to punish. Never in a hurry to punish. You know, this world today likes to use exceptions as a reason to invalidate the truth of what God states. For example, the Bible teaches that parents are to train, which includes, at times, discipline. God's Word teaches that there is a biblical response, a biblical method to disciplining and training a child. What a wonderful thing it is that God gives us that tool. God gives us those abilities and godly wisdom to do so. But here's what the world does. The world sees someone who takes discipline in a very abusive way and says, this is the reason why discipline does not work. Well, wait a minute, you're taking the far extreme situation and causing it to invalidate a truth. Just because someone takes what has been said and takes it further than what God ever intended doesn't make God said right. It just means someone took discipline and acted upon it in flesh and hurt beyond what God intended or desired. Discipline is biblical. And charity, godly love, decides not to act in anger. Parents, let me help you this morning. If you discipline your children in anger, it will not be effective. In fact, all it's going to do is bring division and hurt to your relationship. It will not heal it. God's word tells us charity, godly love, suffereth long. What does that mean? A child has afflicted, a child has wronged you, and has has disobeyed what your word has stated. So what does the world say that everyone who believes the Bible does? They immediately pick up a two-by-four or four-by-two and begin to beat the child senseless. That's, That's foolishness. That's not Bible. That's not scriptural. But that's what the world pictures. That's what the world wants you to think. It wants you to think in extremes. But biblical love looks and says there has been a problem. There has been a wrong. Discipline is needed. And so what does a parent do? A parent who is filled with godly love suffereth long. What does that mean? That means there is a patient enduring. There is a moment in which we're allowing our anger, allowing our frustrations, allowing the heat of the moment to calm down. So when you are ready to discipline, when you are ready to bring that uh, chastisement in, that you do so with careful thought with loving forgiving attitude in heart and mind and when the discipline is given it's given with tears flowing down your cheeks not wanting to give the discipline but you understand that it is necessary in order for the wrong to be dealt with and you do so to correct the will not break the spirit to adjust the will of what God intends, what God desires a child to do, but never to break that spirit. And there's a balance there, and that takes some godly, suffering, long love. It takes a moment in which you can step back and you can calm yourself down. Maybe that's in half an hour. Maybe that's an hour. Maybe that's even coming back later that day and saying look we're going to deal with this i can't deal with that right now i can't without bringing anger into this and i want to do so 
with a right spirit, it is suffering long. Charity suffers long. David, when he dealt with his father-in-law, King Saul, had that suffering long type of charity. Think about this for just a moment. I just used it as a parenting illustration. But there's a lot of wrong that happens to us, is there not? Maybe it's at the workplace. Maybe it's a friend or a neighbor. Maybe it's even in a marriage. We have some difficulties. We have some things in which trouble wrong us. David was wronged. He did nothing but be loyal to his father-in-law. He did everything his father-in-law asked. He excelled in everything that his father-in-law asked him to do. Never with disloyalty. Always with a heart of wanting to please and to help and to further Saul's kingdom and his position. And yet, his father-in-law tried to kill him at least 24 times. And he never lifted his hand to retaliate. Think about that for just a moment. Your father-in-law trying to kill you. And David never lifted his hand up in retaliation. Not one time. On one occasion, the Bible tells us that God put David and his men in a cave. And Saul, his father-in-law, hunting David, trying to kill him, went into that same cave. David and his men were hiding deep. They did not know that they were there. Saul and his men lay down to sleep in that cave. And David and his mighty men next to him said, God's brought, you, brought Saul into your hand kill him and God David said I can't lift my hands up against his anointed but instead he cut off the skirt of his kingly robe and just cutting the piece of the skirt off of David's kingly robe the Bible says his heart smote him just cutting a piece off to give testimony of how God had put him in his uh, God had put Saul in David's hand just this very physical uh, attribute of that smote David deeply in what he had done. And as soon as Saul left that cave, he fell on his face and confessed his sin before Saul and said, please forgive me. And this very thought moved Saul's heart almost to reconciliation, almost into where that relationship would be healed. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, you can look at it if you'd like. Verse number 17, they'll be on the screens, of course, as well. Notice what Scripture says. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy servant, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore, I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let, my, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. As when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear. And let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was set by this day in mine eyes, 
So let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt do, uh, both do great things and also shalt prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. We just read a second account in which, once again, Saul was placed vulnerable in the hands of David. David, as we said, as he said and testified in this portion of Scripture, he once again did not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. And this moment was a time in which David's charity, that suffering long characteristic of charity, nearly repaired a relationship. Saul would not seek after David's life after this because David would go into the land of the Philistines. But it was that suffering long that began to break into the heart of the one who was hunting David's life. Charity suffereth long. It is a love that seeks the welfare of the one that has wronged you. Think about that for just a moment. Someone has wronged you and you want to seek their good welfare. That is godly love. Just in this very first characteristic of godly love, it sets the bar pretty high. <laughs> How often when someone wrongs us, we just want to have revenge, retaliate. You know, revenge is evil. It is not of God. Retaliation is what Satan would do. Charity suffers long. It is a Christ-like love, truly, that goes to the cross, knowing it was our sins that crucified him it is a christ-like love i'm thankful jesus christ did not retaliate upon me when i wronged him and put him on the cross your sin put christ on, on uh, your sin put jesus christ on that cross my sin put jesus christ on that cross thank god he suffered long. Charity suffers long. Secondly, this morning, look back at 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Charity is kind. Is kind. That word kind there means to be gentle. It means to be or become warm-hearted, considerate, humane, gentle, and sympathetic. It is speaking into an eagerness to want and look for ways to be kind. It is in a context speaking of a way in which one is looking on how one can be sympathetic to another, how one can be kind to another, no matter the circumstance. That is godly love. May I go back to the story of David and Saul. Saul is now dead. King, or David is now king. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, I actually read this portion of scripture yesterday once again in my devotions. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 9, verse number 1. Notice this incredible kindness that David so lovingly showed to Saul's family. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? Get this statement. If this is not convicting, I don't know what is. That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Wait a minute. David is wanting to show kindness to his father in law's family to his in-laws because of their exiling him, taking his wife and giving her to another man. 
hunting him down. David is now king. Humanly speaking, in this world today, what would be done? Saul's family would be canceled out, would it not? Bless God, I'm going to hunt them down. They're going to disappear. No one's going to hear from them again. That's what this council culture teaches us, is it not? If you don't agree with someone, silence them. No matter what the situation, no matter what extreme you have to go to, you will find a way to put an end to their breath. But that's not what David did. He said, I want to show him kindness. He said, I loved that family. Jonathan especially. He says, I want to show them kindness, especially for Jonathan's sake. Notice verse number six of the same chapter. Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is found. Notice what happens now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David. He fell on his face and did reverence. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto, uh, David said unto him, Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou, shouldst, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Mephibosheth surely thought that his life was going to be ended when he came before King David. But that wasn't King David's purpose. He came, he brought him to show kindness. In many ways, Saul adopted Mephibosheth as his own son and gave him a seat at the royal table. What incredible love. What incredible, kind, godly love. God's love truly looks for ways to be kind. Missionary David Livingston, in the heart of Africa, Henry Drummond says, Among the Great Lakes I have come across black men and women who remembered the only white man they ever saw before, David Livingston. And as you cross his footsteps in that dark continent, men's faces light up as they speak of the kind doctor who passed there years ago. They could not understand him, but they felt the love that beat in his heart. Why was David Livingston so effective in Africa? Because of godly love. Because of charity. Love spoke their language. His kindness, his suffering long, his patience with them, truly looking to benefit their welfare, spoke a language their heart yearned for. That is why he was so effective. You see, godly love is creative. It looks for ways to be kind instead of ways of seeking to hurt. Let me state that again. Godly love creatively looks for ways to be kind instead of ways to seek to hurt. That's the character of godly love. It looks for a way to show the love of God. That's powerful right there. That would change our relationships in just these first two acts of love this first two area of charity truly would move our relationships onto a solid and firm footing. Let's continue, verse number four. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. That word envy there is the Greek word zelo. 
which embraces both envy and jealousy. When used of man, the distinction is that, whereas envy desires to deprive someone of something he has, jealousy desires to have the same sort of thing for itself. In other words, it is a action, or this envieth not, speaks of an action that says, I want what you have, and I'm going to find a way to get what you have from you. In other words, it is a way that I'm going to take what you have so I can have it for myself. It is an envy. It is an acting envy that looks for ways to take what others have so I may be the beneficiary of it. Instead of working for it ourselves, instead of praying for it ourselves, instead of saving up or being fiscally responsible or financially responsible for what, uh, for what we have to save up for that means. No, it's saying I'm going to take the easy way out and I'm going to find a reason why you should not have it and I'm going to find a way that I can take it from you and have it as myself. That is the envy in which this is speaking of. Paul says, charity envieth not. Charity does not look for a way to take what others have to leave them empty uh, empty of what they have honestly and carefully have saved up, what they have gotten themselves, what they have done themselves. It is looking and saying, I am willing to put in the work. I am willing to do what is necessary. I am willing to do what uh, what is needed, whether it's prayer, whether it's saving, whether it's just simply being patient and allowing for that time to come. I am willing to endure to truly to continue to be faithful to what i am supposed to do and maybe one day i will have what that other individual has there's nothing wrong with looking saying you know what i would like to have that but this is going into a moment in which i'm like that and i'm going to take that from you some way somehow that's an envy god says charity godly love does not envy in other words it doesn't seek a competition Years ago, we were in a missions conference. We had, I think, just David at the time. We're young, still young family. Still am, by the way. You know, 40, still young. And, uh, uh, you know, as I look across and, you know, those in the 50s here, you're still young, amen? And, uh, you know, uh, 60s, you're still young. And uh, 70s, Okay, I've got a little ways to go. Uh, if you're 80s, okay, all right, well, God be with you, amen. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it, older, the older I get, the younger, the younger everyone else looks, amen. But uh, I remember we were in this missions conference as a young couple, just uh, with David, and we wanted just to simply serve and just to encourage churches as we were part of missions conferences, many. And I remember going to this conference. It wasn't far from where I grew up, actually. And the pastor, before the very first service, brought all the missionaries in. And there was we were amazed at how many missionaries that were there. So it wasn't a large church. But there was, I think, 10 or 15 missionaries in there that week. It's like, wow, that's a lot of missionaries. And they supported so many. And the pastor brought all the missionaries in. And he says, man, he said, I'll be honest with you. He said, this week, it's full-on competition. It's his words, not mine. He said, whoever is liked the most at the end of this conference, the church people vote on who likes who the most, and that is who gets our support. He said, so you can do what you deem necessary. He says, but that's how we do it. As soon as I heard those words, I thought, I'm not doing a different thing. I'm just doing what I always do. I'm not going to change my approach. I'm not going to try to perform in some way to get a church to like me. I'm not going to do that. And I remember that week, some missionaries, men who were preaching the gospel, suddenly the carnality came out. And I saw missionaries do things to other missionaries that week that I thought I would never see. Just so they could have another supporting church. 
it affects anyone. And it can affect the church, affect family. Envying. I want that. And I'm going to get it at any cost. Think about this. We just read chapter 12 in previous weeks. What was the gift that the Corinthians were so much after? The gift of tongues, the gift of speaking another language. To be able to speak to someone in Spanish or in Roman or in, uh, or in, or in Greek or in Hebrew or whatever the language might have been. They were thriving after one another to have that gift to have that ability to be able to speak another language. And the gift of tongues was something in which they were vying and envious over one another with. It was something truly that was very much of a competition. But here's what godly love does. Godly love crucifies jealousy and envy. And it begins to actively pray for and support the one whose gift and success you covet. Instead of saying, I'm going to take that gift, it begins to pray for that individual. It begins to seek their welfare and to see how they can uh, further what God has given them. It seeks to further what God is doing in another person's life instead of trying to take it away for themselves. Charity envieth not. Notice how Paul continues in verse number 4. Charity vaunteth not itself. That word vaunteth there means to be boastful. It means to become boastful or exhibiting self-importance. It is speaking of one bragging about one's talents. We would call someone like this a braggart. Someone who says, look at me, look at what I can do. Look at what I am capable of. Look at my talents. Look at my gifts. Look at my abilities. Look at me. Charity vaunteth not itself. It does not brag upon oneself. It's not looking for attention, as we'll see in just a moment, but it is rather looking to help lift and encourage others up. It is looking to try to help and to minister to other people instead of wanting to be the object of all people's eyes and all people's attention. There's a man in the Bible that demonstrated this so powerfully. A man whom we speak of and is testified of often. His name is Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 23, turn there if you would. We'll look at a verse here in just a moment. Prior to Genesis chapter 23 where we pick up this story, Abraham had defeated kings. He had defeated cities lands he had defended his family he was well known for his ability of service and of ability to lead servants and to order his household god had said i'm going to multiply your seed like the sea uh, like the sand on the seashore like the stars in the sky it's going to be without number i'm going to bless you god blessed him of course with a son whose name was laughter Isaac, what a humorous, what a humorous name, Isaac. Come here, laughter, come here. I'm sure that brought a smile to his parents' face over and over and over again as they recalled the story of how God blessed them with a child even in their old age when physically it was not possible. God worked a miracle. But now time's passed. Isaac is now grown. And Sarah... Abraham's wife dies. And he looks for a place to bury his wife. And here's where we find the story in Genesis 23, verse number 4. He is now bartering. He is now trying to purchase a burial plot for his wife. And notice what he says. I am a stranger. And a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you. That I may bury my dead out of my sight. Wait a minute. His wife just died. 
These people in which he spoke to knew very well of Abraham's testimony, knew what had happened in his life, knew of the victories that, his, uh, that he had led and that God had given him to win. They knew what God had done in his life. They knew his testimony. And yet he says, I'm just a stranger. I'm just someone passing through. I'm no one important. But I like this piece of land. And I'd like to bury my wife could I buy it? Could I get it from someone? Whoever owns it, may I purchase it? What humility. Notice what verse number 6 says. Hear us, my Lord. Thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchers, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold thee from the sepulcher, but thou mayest bury thy dead. What did they say? They say, no, 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 Abraham, we know who you are. You're not just simply a stranger that's just passing through. We know that you're a mighty prince. We know what you've done. Your testimony speaks volumes. We know exactly who you are, Abraham. You are truly are uh, uh, you truly are staying humbly about yourself. But it is incredible that your humility did what it gave them. It gave uh, Abraham their favor in their eyes and truly god used that gentle and that humble love that love that was not assuming that wasn't self-promoting to do what to enable god to give an opportunity to bear his wife we could go on in the story we're not going to for sake of time but that's the type of attitude in which charity god's love and action endeavors to exhibit it is one that truly doesn't look to lift oneself up but looks to serve and to humbly humbly go through the relationships of life abraham did not lift himself up charity doesn't lift oneself up and then notice verse number four and i'm done charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. And then notice this words, is not puffed up. That word right there, puffed up, or those words right there, literally means to be or become proud. Speaking of a way in which one is puffed up with air. It literally means to be inflated. He says, Paul says, the charity, godly love doesn't look to inflate oneself, to make one seem bigger than they actually are. This week we celebrated two birthdays, we had some balloons. It's amazing how big balloons can get but you know that balloon is actually pretty small a lot of air if you pop that balloon there's just a little bit in your hand it's not much to it at all how much do we take what little we are that's hard to swallow it as little we are because we think we're pretty good at times, do we not? Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how I accomplished this. But really, the, matter of the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we are dust. I remember the president of the seminary that I went to used to say, we are zeros with the ring rubbed out. <laughs> that's a very pointed way of saying we're not what we think we are we lift ourselves up so much and paul says charity conveys the idea that we're going to come out and serve 
and retreat back into the shade. It's like an animal or like, like an object that just comes out of the shade or the shadows and comes out to do that one object, that one thing, and then retreats back in, back into the shadows, not wanting to be seen, not wanting the attention, but just wanting to serve. And God uses that. Godly charity, godly love, looks for how I can serve. Not so everyone can see me serve, but so that I can serve to serve my Savior. Retreat back into the shadows if we could state it that way. Say, let me lift someone else up. Let me encourage someone else. Let me exhort one another, exhort someone else and let them enjoy some love, some attention. I'm willing to just be that support. That's godly love. We're just getting into the ice the tip of the iceberg with charity. Paul continues with seven more things in which charity is and is not. We'll continue there. But I believe as we look at these simple five thoughts in this first verse, in verse number four, on the definition of love, there is so much in it that when I recognize a godly love, a godly action, the acting of charity in my heart and life, truly is a matter of humility, of service, of preferring one another. And this kind of love does not fail. It doesn't fail. Sometimes we want instantaneous results. Well, I showed love to that individual. We just talked about David 24 times. David suffered long. And he said, God's going to take care of it at that right moment. And God did. But it didn't take a day, a week, or a month. It took years. But God worked through that love. He rallied men beside him that would further his kingdom that God would give him. But it took some charity. Let me ask you this morning. How has the Holy Spirit of God convicted your heart? As we preach, the Holy Spirit has been just pricking. I'm sure as we've been listening to the Spirit of God that there are areas in our life where we say, you know, I need some godly love there. Let me encourage you today. Let's yield to the Spirit of God and seek that godly love.